Welcome to Office Hours with a Physio. For everyone out there working around the clock to create a class session, grade a paper, analyze data, plan for the next service meeting, and treat a patient, these stories are for you. We are so excited to be here today. Derek and myself, Cameron Evans, are members of the Academic Faculty Special Interest Leadership Group of the APTA's Academy of Education. But we view this podcast as an opportunity to inspire and connect our members by sharing stories of those who have led the way in our field and our profession to where we are today. We are incredibly excited today with our very first podcast guest, Dr. Pamela Lavangi. Give you a quick overview and then we'll very quickly turn it over to Dr. Levangi. Dr. Levangi was department chair and professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at MGH Institute of Health Professions from 2012 to 2017 when she was awarded professor emeritus status. Prior to her position at the Institute, Dr. Levangi was a member of Boston University's physical therapy faculty for 23 years and a PT faculty member at Sacred Heart University for 13 years. Dr. Levangi and she received her Bachelor of Science in Physical Therapy from Northeastern University in Boston, her Master of Science from Boston University, her Doctor of Science in Epidemiology from Boston University School of Public Health, and her Doctor of Physical Therapy from the MGH Institute. Her teaching has focused on kinesiology and research content, and she is the co-author of a very widely used textbook for all of us entitled Joint Structure and Function, a Comprehensive Analysis, which is now in its sixth edition. Dr. Levangi has held many leadership positions in our professional organizations, including her current role as president of the APTA's Academy of Education. She has also served as past president of the section on research. She is an ex-officio member of the Scientific Review Committee of the Foundation of Physical Therapy and a member of the editorial board of physical therapy. She has also served on the board of directors of the American Council of Academic Physical Therapy, better known to us as ACAP. And in 2001, Dr. Levangi received the APTA's Dorothy E. Bathke Eleanor J. Carlin Award for Excellence in Academic Teaching. And in 2009, she was elected as a Catherine Worthingham Fellow, the highest honor among APTA's membership categories. Pam, welcome. We are so excited and appreciative to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being asked by the Academic Faculty SIG to talk about my journey because as is true for a large number of faculty, especially those in their more mature years, as I am, um, we're talking about journeys typically that are not planned, that are not linear, which of course always makes it a little bit more intriguing. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in physical therapy, which was in 1970, the only option. Understanding right away that context of when my journey began probably is going to make some of the twists and turns in my journey a little bit more obvious because things have changed so much in that time. My initial path was definitely in pediatrics. I loved everything about treating children. My uh, first three years in the clinic, I worked with children in a residential school who had chronic handicaps of some kind. This was before mainstreaming. So children that typically today would remain in their current schools were not accepted. You know, no one on crutches, no one in a wheelchair could be in a public school. So that's where I began my journey. 
And we had the opportunity to take students on clinical experiences. And I think that was the first time that I really realized that I enjoyed teaching. It hadn't really occurred to me during my undergraduate studies, but I had a great time doing it. And at a certain point where I was working, I kind of got the sense that there was some codependency going on between me and my uh, and the children that I treated because I didn't have a big turnover. I, I basically you know, saw the same kids from year to year. So I started looking at other opportunities and sort of by mistake, ended up applying, applying for a teaching position at Boston University. Well, the mistake was I did not have a master's degree at the time, and I assumed that was a requirement. But one of my colleagues that I worked with had graduated from BU and said, oh, no, I had a faculty member who only had a bachelor's degree and she's leaving. And uh, that was actually not accurate. She did have her master's degree. But I applied and much to my surprise, I was accepted onto the faculty. And even then being hired without a master's degree was a little unusual in physical therapy education to the extent that I was intrigued by meeting one of the faculty early within the first week that I arrived at BU who apologized to me for the chair of the department having hired me, given how inappropriate it was, which was a great way to start your teaching career. But um, all right. You know, I also, by the way, was told that I would need to get my master's degree in order to continue. So my teaching assignment was in kinesiology. We called it functional anatomy and also served as a teaching assistant uh, in the gross anatomy, neuroanatomy courses. Uh, my kinese teaching was in a team, and I think there were like four of us when I started, and it gradually whittled down to two of us, and then ultimately to just me after quite a few years later. And at that time, uh, I'll, when I started, certainly, I really didn't have very much in the way of positive role models. There's no one who really kind of knocked my socks off in terms of uh, how well they did in the classroom. But there were quite a few people who I didn't want to emulate. And I, th I think one factor is to realize that negative role modeling is actually a very powerful teacher. And so rather than being upset that you don't have more positive role models, try flipping things to say, well, you're learning a lot about what you don't want to be like. So a few years into teaching, I took a leave of absence to do um, my master's degree with a concentration in physical therapy. And during that same leave of absence, I also had my first child. So I'm all into the whole efficiency thing. I finished my course requirements during that year, but I didn't finish my thesis for a year or two later because at that point I was back to work, but on a part-time basis. I it originally was somewhere between a 50% and a 75% appointment uh, for quite a number of years. That was in part because by that point I had two children and also being at Boston University, which is essentially a research institution, I knew I was not going to get tenure. So part of that was a strategy to stay off the tenure line. My kinesiology 
co-instructor for quite a number of years, about 10 years, was Cynthia Norkin. And Cindy was coming up for 10-year review in a few years. She was enrolled in an EDD program at that time, but didn't have any publications, which simply was not it would not make her tenurable at all. And the two of us had developed a course packet that we used for our functional anatomy or kinesis course, because at that time, there really were very few physical therapy textbooks. And the only one that was really out there that related to our content area was Brunstrom's Clinical Kinesiology, which is actually still around all these decades later. At that point, it really didn't fit our needs. So we put together the learning materials that we needed. Well, Cindy, looking for her publication, uh, had the idea that we would turn the, the course packet into a textbook. And, you know, wouldn't that be straightforward? I really didn't think so, <laughs> but I'm not going to be the one standing in her way to get tenure. So we got started on this project. And four or five years later, we finally got published and a textbook is a huge undertaking. And while that might have taken us a little longer, that's not a bad guesstimate of how long it takes to bring something literally to publication. Unfortunately, Dr. Norkin, who had now finished her EDD, the book didn't get published in time for her tenure review. And so she left BU and went to Ohio University. And we actually continued uh, our collaboration together on the textbook for the next five editions, now being in the sixth edition and pending the seventh edition for joint structure and function. And we continued that collaboration until uh, Dr. Norkin's death a, a few years ago. So it was, it was quite a long-term relationship. During that same period, I got increasingly involved in administration within the physical therapy program at BU. Started, you know, serving on committees, of course, and then assumed some leadership on some of those committees and ultimately became the coordinator of BU's professional masters or MSPT program. Ultimately moved on to an administrative appointment which is the point at which I went to a 100% appointment because given my appointment was administrative, it took me off the tenure track. So I didn't have to stay part-time and my children were in daycare or school at that point. So I continued really being quite intrigued with the academic administration. During that same period, which is now about 10 or 12 years since I started at BU, I also started advising research projects. BU's post-professional master's degree required a thesis and the MSPT program required small group projects. So getting engaged in that advising really served me well because I ultimately did, I think, presentations with my then graduate colleagues for just about all those projects and was co-author on nine projects 
that were directly the result of, of that advising process in my areas of interest. Meanwhile, the train at Boston University, Sargent College in particular, which is where the physical therapy program was housed, really changed. We were kind of an island within the college. The college was an island within the larger university. And as long as you were a good teacher and you had professional service, you could get tenured. And that clearly was not going to be the case anymore. That BU, like the rest of the university, was going to require that someone have a post-professional doctorate. Now, I'd gotten my master's degree at that point, but really had no clue what I wanted to do for a doctoral degree. And I went with the fact that probably my biggest challenge in my master's program was really understanding statistics and getting the whole concept of research. And I knew that was going to be part of any doctoral program I might get into in addition to whatever your concentration was. So I figured, well, why not just do a concentration in research? And that way I wouldn't have to do anything else besides figure the research part out. So I applied to and was accepted into the epidemiology program at BU School of Public Health. Again, kind of thinking I was not taking an easy path, but taking a less complicated one. And of the various happenstance things that have happened during my career, this one was just gold. I enjoyed the program so much to the point that I wished I had had the opportunity to do it over again, because I think I would have gotten even more out of it. I had no interest in being an epidemiologist, But at that point, epidemiologic methods, that is the the research statistical end of it, those methods were not being applied in physical therapy at all. So that was really my goal was to bring epidemiologic methods into physical therapy. So I finished my coursework for my doctoral program probably within a year or two when I was I was doing it part time. But I will tell you up front, it took me 10 years to get the rest of it done. So if all of you are you know, thinking about doing your doctoral studies part-time. My experience may be an argument against that, but I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. So in the long run, I, I was I was I was fine with it. So the the 10 years, by the way, was because so many other things were going on. I did at least one, if not two editions of joint structure and function during that period. For one or two years, I was serving as an interim co-chair of the department. I still had two kids. I was still advising research projects. And once I finally landed on a dissertation topic, which was looking at pelvic asymmetry and low back pain because I wasn't using a secondary database, which is the by far the common experience in an epidemiology program. I had to collect data on 300 subjects. And so it it took a bit to get that done. As often happens in one's career, at some point, BU and I parted ways uh, and not amicably, but it served me in that as part of my negotiations with the university, 
I got nine month leave of absence. And that enabled me to finish my data collection before I moved on to my new position. And my new position, and I was really lucky to to have this, was at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. And uh, this was a brand new program. Uh, I was one of the founding faculty and it was a problem-based learning curriculum. I was not, I had not yet written up my dissertation and starting a new curriculum, planning a new curriculum and writing your dissertation aren't that compatible, but I was making progress. Well, a year or two after I arrived at Sacred Heart, one of those bumps in, in one's life and career happened in that I was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. And that may sound like, oh yeah, that's a whole story in and of itself. And it, it is, but it created some very new opportunities for me. Not the least of which is I had to take a leave of absence for a while for some of my treatment. And I was able to finish writing my dissertation uh, during that period. And in fact, literally on the day that I was being admitted for uh, a bone marrow transplant, which were being done at, at that time, I dropped my dissertation in the mail and defended about six weeks later. It really gave me some wiggle room I, I wouldn't have had otherwise. Ultimately, that breast cancer journey with my personal experiences and with my kinesiology background created an intersection of areas that just fascinated me. And, and that was around looking at shoulder dysfunction post-treatment for breast cancer with a particular interest in uh, the effect of radiation. And that's actually served as probably for the next 10 or 20 years, my primary research trajectory at that point, as well as some of the research methods issues that, that I was able to learn from my, my doctoral program. While I was at Sacred Heart, I also started getting involved in professional service. I had, of course, as is required of all faculty members, been involved in committees and, and for me, leadership positions in the PT program, but I really hadn't gotten involved in APTA related events, but I did start to do that. And as was mentioned, I ultimately became the president of the then section on research, now the Academy of Research. And that time really paid dividends. That's what gave me the ability to serve on the scientific review committee. And I think probably indirectly related to being invited to serve on the PTJ editorial board, both of which were huge, huge growing experiences for me and gave me a lot of opportunity to get to know key people in the field. So there were, there were a lot of things that, that you know, almost like a ping pong ball effect, open up once you get involved. And it doesn't need to be a lot. You can get, I, I think most of us started with, you know, doing things like serving as an abstract reviewer 
for conferences or being a room moderator for conferences. It's, it's about beginning to get your name out there, beginning to get to know other people. And don't be intimidated about running for things. I ran for several positions in the research section um, and lost every time before I was approached about running for president. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to run for president and I can't even, you know, win in a secretary election. Well, I won. They, you know, I was elected president, much to my amazement. Uh, And it gave me an opportunity to bring skills to bear, quite frankly, that some of my other predecessors had not, and a lot of it had to do with organizational change. So again, you know, don't think that you need to be, you know, Mr. or Ms. Wonderful um, to run for something because you don't, right? I, maybe I got the, you know, the the vote of the people who felt sorry for me because I kept losing, but it still happened and it was still to my advantage. So I was pretty sure I would spend the rest of my career at Sacred Heart. I just, it was a wonderful opportunity for me. But at some point, my husband was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which if you're not familiar with it, is a a life-limiting cancer. But I continued with Sacred Heart in Southern Connecticut. My husband, Boston, where we lived in Boston, wasn't really in a position to change because of his network. So for 13 years while I was at Sacred Heart, I lived four days a week in Connecticut and two days, uh, three days a week in at home. And so I kind of figured after five years into my husband's diagnosis that I really should go home and live with him full time. And so reluctantly left Sacred Heart and ended up as associate chair at MGH Institute of Health Professions, and then two years later, moved into the chair's position when Leslie Portney, who was chair, moved into the dean's position. So we kind of did a jump shift kind of thing. And I didn't think, I knew I didn't want to be a chairperson, but knowing that this was towards the end of my career, yeah, I obviously agreed to it, but it turned out to give me experiences and taught me things I never would have expected. And it was really, it was a wonderful opportunity up to and including working with faculty on a completely new DPT curriculum. The Institute already had a DPT, so we were starting from ground zero. And that experience alone was phenomenal and working with the faculty on that. So I retired in uh, December of 2017. And I retired in the middle of the year because that was when my term on the ACAP board ended. So it was all very kind of purposefully constructed. And no, I didn't leave on short notice. I gave a year and a half notice after my two years service with ACAP. So I retired, not really having any plans at all, but not worried about it. And shortly after my retirement, I was approached about running for president of the then education section. And there were some particular needs that the now Academy of Education had at that point that really fit the tools I had acquired 
over time. And so I decided to run, was elected to the position. And, you know, here I am now in my fifth year of, and final year of service. And it's been an extraordinary experience for me for a whole lot of reasons. I think I have literally used everything I've ever learned during my time with the Academy of Education. And, you know, again, just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And what a wonderful way to, to go into retirement because I had the, the time to devote to it that I never would have had if I was still employed full-time. And of course, importantly, I retired the year before COVID hit. Didn't know about it, but if I had, <laughs> I would have definitely retired and I'm glad uh, that I did. So again, uh, this is a journey that took twists and turns around things that I certainly didn't plan on and in many cases were very negative in terms of one, the way one usually looks at them, but every single change that I've made, either by choice or not, has really turned out to have very, very positive effects for me in terms of my own professional development, my own growth as a leader and a person. Don't ever think when life throws something at you, you know, that you have to duck. You know, if you take it, you know, full in the chest, it can still be something that serves you well in the long run. And I think that's probably the most important take home message from my journey. What recommendations then do you have to those of us who are in the middle of our career or maybe even in the beginning of our career about any pieces of this, whether it be the academic teaching piece or maybe research or service, you've certainly explored all of those extensively. What advice might you have for those of us who are right in the middle of it? I think probably the most important thing is to stay open-minded. Don't be afraid to think out of the box and don't be afraid to take a shot at something that you may not be, you don't think you're going to be necessarily successful at. And I don't mean trying things that are, you know, totally out of your, your frame of reference, but don't be afraid to volunteer for things. You know, don't be afraid to run for offices. The most common thing I hear is, oh, I'm, I don't, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not qualified for that. I wasn't qualified for a lot of the things I did, <laughs> but you learn to be qualified quickly if you stay open-minded, if you utilize the people around you well and learn from them and look at both those positive role models and the negative role models about that help you understand what you do want to do and what you don't want to do. And at least in my experience, those have been equally powerful for me. But, you know, I'm really pleased that the academic faculty SIG is doing this because I think you're going to find over time that my journey, while its benchmarks are different than others might be, you're going to find that it's not uncommon at all to find that our leaders have followed what you would have thought were atypical and nonlinear journeys. I, I think it's more common 
than not. I think you may be very right. And we're so excited to hear so many more stories as well. And as always, when we get to the end of things, we like to throw exams at people. For us, we have something called the board exam. And so the very first question I have for you is, what do you think is the least favorite part of these jobs? For me, probably as a as a leader, the least favorite thing for me is when I have to deal with faculty who are, are having problems with other faculty. So they come to me and they want me to fix it. Betty, I'm having problems with Betty. Betty's a pain, you know, t- fix Betty. And I learned over time that I can't go in and talk to Betty secondhand if I haven't experienced the problems that are being reported. And what I typically would get from individuals when I would say, well, have you talked to Betty about it? No, I have not. I don't like, I don't deal well with, you know, with confrontation. I said, me either. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not taking, I learned over time, I'm not taking this on until you've at least given it a shot. But yeah, um, the number of times faculty have come to me to complain about another faculty member is way higher than I'd like. That's my least favorite part. The last question I have for you is, in addition to PT, what would your side hustle be? I think I would, it would be dance. When I was in junior high school, and maybe high school, I guess high school, I took dance lessons, you know, ballet, jazz, modern, etc., and just loved it. I just loved it. And I love watching things about dance, you know, whether it's street dance or, you know, ballet. I, I don't have the talent for it, but that would definitely, you know, be my my side hustle. I tried being I took accordion lessons for many years. One of those little known facts. And I was in an accordion band. That's not my future. Definitely not. So dance. Well, we want to say thank you to our guest, Dr. Pam Levangi, as well as our co-host, Dr. Cameron Evans, and I'm Dr. Derek Liuzzo. And make sure you hit that subscribe button and check back in during our office hours.